Greetings, and welcome to The Fuse, the podcast of Confluence Concerts. My name is Larry Beckwith. On this, the October edition of The Fuse, I will speak with the Member of Parliament for Timmins, James Bay, Charlie Angus, about his band The Grievous Angels and their new album. Rebecca Cuddy is a mezzo-soprano originally from Brampton, Ontario, with a burgeoning career as a performer, teacher, and mentor. And we talk about all of those things and more. And I will also visit with organist Matthew Larkin, who will tell us about the program he has chosen for his solo recording, which will be released with the assistance of Confluence Concerts in a few short months. Those conversations, our monthly calendar, some great music and a whole lot more on this month's edition of The Fuse. Hello, it's my pleasure to welcome you to the second edition of The Fuse, our monthly podcast with interviews and features that celebrate the incredible musical community that we enjoy here in Toronto and beyond. I want to thank you all for the great feedback that we've been receiving on our inaugural show, and I encourage you to be in touch with suggestions, questions, or just to say hi. You can write to me at larry at confluenceconcerts.ca. It's a busy time for us, though it will likely be many months before we can concertize in front of a live audience. We're busy preparing the next two events in our online season. A personal remembrance, premiering on November 21st, and our annual Walter Unger Salon, this year entitled Aging and Creativity, scheduled for December 7th. I'll talk more about these projects a little later in the program. My first guest on the show is Charlie Angus. Charlie has been the Federal Member of Parliament for the riding of Timmins James Bay since 2004. He's a member of the New Democratic Party and currently serves as the Vice Chair of the Standing Committee on Access to Information, Privacy and Ethics and is the NDP critic for Indigenous and Northern Affairs. But the reason I invited Charlie to be on the show today is because his band, The Grievous Angels, is releasing their eighth album entitled Summer Before the Storm. Despite, or maybe because of, the grueling life of a politician, Charlie has continued his parallel career as a fantastic roots musician, a career that began, as he will tell us, as a teenager in the Queen Street bars here in Toronto in the late 1970s. Charlie Angus, welcome to The Fuse. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Uh, This is a big thrill for me because I have um, followed your career since the 1980s, and uh, and I used to go and see your band L'Etranger in Toronto when I was in late, I guess the later years of high school and early university years, and then have followed your, your time in the Grievous Angels. It's very exciting that you have a new album coming out, which we'll talk about, I guess, in a little while. Certainly, but I, yeah. My first question for you was, was who were some of your musical heroes when you were growing up uh, here in Toronto? 
Well, um, you know, obviously, punk blew the doors open for us. Uh, it gave us a whole way of seeing the world. Uh, uh, our family had moved from Timmins because my dad got a job, and we were living in a townhouse, in set of townhouses in Scarborough, and the whole world just looked beige and gray. Uh, that first Clash album changed my life, uh, and it made me realize that you didn't have to be all that talented. Not that the Clash weren't talented, but if you had determination, if you had guts, if you were willing to do it, you could do it. I think that was so invigorating. Uh, being in Scarborough at the time, um, we lived in a Jamaican neighborhood, so uh, reggae was something I was hearing all the time. But I think my deepest musical influences come from my family. Uh, my family are Scottish and Cape Breton. Cape Bretoners and my Cape Breton grandfather used to hold Saturday night Kaylee's uh, at our in his little miner's house in Timmins with all the neighbors being Italian and French and Ukrainian coming over and the big food and we learned if you could sing you could stay up he ran out of songs so <laughs> uh, I grew up on all the old Scottish and Irish songs and they were um, they really influenced me because they they always seemed to be poignant about something else and then the other funny musical stream that was outside there was my mother loved Hank Williams. Uh, and as a kid, we used to just groan and cry every time she put Hank Williams on. But, uh, she said to me, she said, one day you'll understand how great he is. So there was Hank Williams, that sort of country thing. There was rock and roll, uh, but definitely the Celtic and Irish and Cape Breton sound really, uh, I don't know, it sounds like the Grievous Angels to me. Yeah. And um, can you reminisce a little bit about your time in, in the band before the Grievous Angels, the uh, L'Etranger, which you were you were in with uh, with Andrew Cash. Andrew Cash. It was an extraordinary time. Uh, I look back on it now, and it seems very hard to believe. Uh, we made a decision. We were we were fifteen. We were going to learn how to play our instruments, and we were going to quit school and go on the road. And that was our life's plan. And we kept to that plan. I think our first record came out. When we were about nineteen. Um. And it was the beginning of the whole DIY movement. You know, you carried your records to gigs. You, you sold them out of the back of the vehicle. You sold them off the stage. Uh, but it was such an explosion of music then. I have a bunch of old listings from some of the clubs we played, Larry's Hideaway, The Edge, The Cabana Room. Well, I probably played in almost every bar in its day in Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you did. Except the Young Street Strip, which was not... Not something a band like ours would have been welcome. Right. Anywhere right. else we played. Right. Yeah. And when you see the amount of acts that were playing in the city of Toronto then, it's staggering. Yeah. I remember walking down Queen Street and the amount of bars that had live music from Monday to Saturday, it was a real uh, a unique time, I think, because Toronto uh, had influences that were from the UK. Uh, it had, obviously, big influences from New York. But it was starting to meld into something that was much more of a Canadian sound because, again, it had it had a really interesting black musical history that wasn't Detroit. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was so much happening. And so L'Etranger, we were very political. We were we were we, we practiced 30 some hours a week. Um, and we played. A, it was a it was a really it was a great school of life is all I can say. And I was I was at your well I think it was your last gig at at uh, the Horseshoe Tavern. Horseshoe, yes. Um, when I guess you had decided to move to move from Toronto up north, 
No, not I. Uh, my wife and I. I met my wife. She was 22 when I met her. I was 19. We decided that we were going to start working with the homeless. Right. Uh, so we set up a house for the homeless in the east end of Toronto. Uh, so uh, and Lettranger was a. It was like the clash. It was a full time. It was a life career. And I and I thought Andrew could really go on. He was going to sign with Island Records. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started working with the homeless guys coming out of prison, people with drug issues, alcohol issues. Um, and then the Grievous Angels completely started by accident. It was really just a Saturday morning street busking thing to, to let off steam. And uh, and it was actually, I think, at that sh- big shifting moment when a lot of the punk music was looking for roots. And I had some of those roots, you know, country music and right. Celtic music. And it just seemed so much easier just to get out with an acoustic guitar and a stand-up bass and... and uh, an accordion or fiddle and not have to worry about all the gear, all the amps, all the plugins, and we'd just go out and play on the street. So the Grievous Angels kind of morphed out of something that was just meant to be a street street busking activity. Right. And I've always thought of them as being, um, well, I would use the word unpretentious in that way in that, and very generous in terms of, of uh, it's a bit, it seems to me to be a big tent group, um, appeals to a lot of different audiences and, uh, and it's so enjoyable to listen to. I, I remember hearing you guys at one of the Mariposa festivals. Again, I might have my my story wrong, but I think it was on the night or the a couple of days after the Meech Lake Accord was scuttled. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and you hosted such a beautiful late night. Uh, it felt like a Kaylee in in one of the tents up in. I think it was when they were doing it in uh, Barry. Yeah, it was in Barry. And yeah, we were kicked out the next day. Uh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, because me having been always diplomatic, I started speaking out against how we couldn't get on a stage without having Molson's at beer cans being, and they were pushing our fans around. But yeah, yeah that Saturday night, it's funny. I don't remember the Kaylee part of it so much. I remember having to go on after Buddy Guy, <laughs> right? Yeah, to the stage, and how I remember thinking, how do you go on stage? after you've been schooled in the world of heavy Chicago blues by Buddy Guy. And there we were, you know, these white kids with our, our accordions <laughs> and fiddles going up after. But what we did was we just did what we always did, which yeah. is it was fun. It was a little chaotic. Um, and this, it's this, you know, the Grievous Angels, it's always it's stories about people. And uh, yeah, yeah, it's a big tent. There's been a lot of people involved in the band over the years. Uh, the new lineup has got a lot of people in it. Andy Mays. And the Sky Diggers came out and sang on a number of tracks on the new recording. Yeah, I noticed his name on the on the the list. That's great. Well, so let's talk about the new album. It's your eighth album, is that right? Eighth album, yeah. Yeah, and and uh, when did you record it? Who's involved? Um, well, what, what we, are the circumstances around around its recording? We recorded our last two albums uh, in Belleville, where Tim Hadley, our longstanding bass player, lives, and he sort of put. A uh, new drummer, an uh, electric guitar player together. Peter Gillard, always with us, came out. Uh, I've always loved singing duets ever since Michelle and I sang together, but it never never worked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this Janet Mercier is a great singer, originally from Liverpool. And I had enough money to record three songs. Um, and we got there, and we were just so hankering to play together. I was literally writing songs in the room, teaching the band the parts and saying, okay, we got two to, two takes to do this. Um, and it certainly doesn't sound like that, but a number of songs, like there's a song in the album called All Night Day Panair, 
which I think is one of the more haunting songs in the album, taught, wrote that, taught the band that, recorded it. Uh, the morning after the opening track, I remember teaching the band and saying to the guys, well, you guys stop practicing your parts. I got to teach you where the changes are coming. And, and that's very much a Grievous Angels way of doing things. It's like, right. guys, we're here together. We've got 48 hours together. Let's do an album. And uh, so the album, it's uh, I think it's a darker album. I think there's a lot of, it was written just before COVID, but it captures I think a world of uncertainty mm-hmm. of, of uh, tension uh, there's lots of issues of uh, violence or you know, dispossession in the record, but there's also a lot of sense of hope. It's very much written in the Grievous Angels way of telling stories of people. Well, it's beautiful. You were kind enough to send it to me earlier today, and I really have enjoyed listening to it. I'll, I'll keep listening to it. Do you have a favorite track on the album or a, an, a track that has sort of emerged as one that you're um, particularly proud of? Well, um, there's a number of things I really like on the record. Uh, the title track, Summer Before the Storm, uh, really, I think, is, is almost a uh, COVID anthem. Or it's, it's really a song about the uncertainty of our times and, and the chaos that we're seeing around us and trying to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote that and we recorded that as the last song on the record. Um, Fields of Normandy uh, was something I wrote while I was actually traveling in Normandy with veterans. Okay. Uh, we'd been at the Battle of Normandy, and I was so impressed. I told their story. I again, I mentioned All Night Day Panair. Uh, it's to me, it's a very, very haunting, disturbing song about the effects of war on people and 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 memory and and our own memory as Canadians. So, uh, but there's a lot of fun stuff on it, and having Andy Mays on the record was it was just such a blast. I was really hoping that Andrew Cash or Jason Collette would come out and join us, a couple mm-hmm. other people. We just couldn't pull it off, so we just we just went with it. Right. Yeah, Andy Mays is a terrific singer. He lives about three blocks from me, I think, here in the East End, or at least I, I heard him recently in the in the East End in a park. Well, not recently. It was, it was I guess, last summer. Yeah. Um, Everybody but, I know uh, thinks he lives in the West End, but Andy Mays is sort of just above us all. He may oh, live okay. everywhere, right? <laughs> That's a possibility. He's yeah. He's such a defining presence, and he was—he just came in, uh, didn't know any of the songs. I'd asked him to join us on singing Iron Working Man, which is the Ron Hines mm-hmm. cover, uh, which is a song Ron had never recorded, and I thought it'd be great to get Andy's voice on it, and I wanted him on Red Deer to Marguerite, which the Sky Diggers do, and which was on the first uh, Grievous Angels record, our very first album, Toot the Gang. Mm. And um, then he just hung around, and I said, would you sing on this? Would you sing on that? And he said, sure. And he just learned the parts so quickly, and it was he was, it was just beautiful to watch Andy sing and, and come up with parts right there. And, and it all just sounds so natural when you listen to the record. Yeah, he's a very special special guy. I've also heard him in concert recently with the Art of Time Ensemble, mm. and he he will even tackle some classical, you know, German leader uh, to and and sort of bring his own special uh, special qualities to it. It's amazing. It's amazing. Well, uh, Andy changed Christmas forever when he did Good King Wenceslas, and uh, I remember when they Sky Diggers did Good King Wenceslas, and we were all like, "What, what the <laughs> hell, that?" And I, it's because you know we we learned it all as kids. We all went to Catholic school, right? But uh, hearing Good King Wenceslas, and suddenly it was like. Man, that's like the perfect song. Why didn't we ever know it was a good song yeah. when we were kids? Because we hated it. But yes, yeah, uh, he, he can he can take a song and make it very profound. Yeah. Well, I think of you um, as mixing community activism, 
uh, social justice uh, and music in such a special way. Maybe I guess my last question is, what is the role? You're such a busy guy. You're an author. Of course, you're the member of parliament for Timmins James Bay. Um, what is the role that music continues to play in your life? I think music is so important, especially now. I think we're in a time, and, and I mentioned it on some of the themes in Summer Before the Storm, of, of a growing political toxicity and an alienation and an inability to speak to one another. And I think music reminds us that there's a, there's a deeper soul in humanity. There's a deeper goodness. And it cuts across political lines. It cuts across, you know, the talking po- political talking points. And I keep going back to music because sometimes I find, as a politician, as someone who makes his living speaking on behalf of people, that I can't find the words to capture what I'm seeing around me. And sometimes you find it in a song. And, I'm, you know, I mean, as Bruce Springsteen said, I learned more from a three-minute record than I ever learned in school. Music takes us to a place. And if you do music and you love music, it's about taking your audience to a place that's a better place than where they started out from. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Charlie. Thank you so much, and I'm really glad we got to do this. Me too. Okay, take care. That was Charlie Angus, lead guitarist and singer for the Grievous Angels and the Minister of Parliament for Timmins, James Bay. The Grievous Angels' new album, Summer Before the Storm, is available on iTunes. And from the new album, here is All Night Des Panneurs. Looking to make it home The snow is falling on the ground so cold Like the setting of a Christmas poem And it flashed his mind through the halls of time To a yesterday he used to know And he reached for the rack of the wine in the back And grabbed two bottles to go when I see the snow I see Sarajevo and that village burning by the road when I see the snow and all the things I know and I just can't put it back no Desert stars I gave 
everything they'd need But the kid at the cash just stared right back and said Twenty dollars please There's a chopper sound And it goes round and round In every one of my dreams My Marie But it wasn't me who finally made it home At an all-night day Panarin home Looking to make it home And the snow is falling on the ground so cold Like the setting of a Christmas poem When I see the snow When I see the snow I see Sarajevo And a village burning by the road When I see the snow And all the things I know I just can't put them back no more I just can't put them back no more That was The Grievous Angels, led by Charlie Angus, with All Night Dépanneur. You're listening to The Fuse, the podcast of Confluence Concerts. My name is Larry Beckwith. There are numerous online events happening these days for your edification and to enliven our otherwise dreary COVID lives. I would draw your attention to the listings at thewholenote.com, and in particular head you in the direction of Opera Atelier, who are presenting a wonderful new program, Something Rich and Strange, featuring Misha Brueger-Gosman, Colin Ainsworth, and others. The exact broadcast date is to be decided, but it will be well worth checking out. In addition, there is new and interesting material coming from new music concerts, the Toronto Bach Festival, and from a little further afield, Early Music Vancouver has been posting numerous fascinating events from the Chan Centre in Vancouver. Just plug the company name into Google or YouTube and the information will pop up. My next guest on The Fuse is mezzo-soprano Rebecca Cuddy, who sang last November in Confluence Concerts program entitled An Evening with Marion Newman. She's been busy with projects for Tapestry Opera, Soundstreams, Vancouver Opera and other companies, as well as pursuing her work as a teacher a mentor, a beater, and numerous other endeavors. Rebecca Cuddy, welcome to The Fuse. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to chat with you and see you again. It's been a while. It has been. It has <laughs> been. Um, we were so thrilled that you were able to join us for Marian Newman's uh, concert recital mm -hmm. last November. It seems like ages ago, but certainly there's this great feeling in in this company that, you know, anybody who's participated in a concert or been part of a project 
instantly becomes part of the uh, the family. So, and I felt that very much when we oh, yeah. um, when we interacted around that time. So. Oh yeah, it's so lovely, and and Marion is so welcoming. So we got to spend some time with her after the concert as well, and get to know each other a little bit better. And it's funny, yeah, it was almost a year ago, not even a year ago, that we did the concert, mm-hmm. and yet it feels like. Many, many moons. <laughs> well, we'll get into a little bit of that in yeah. uh, in this conversation. But I'm interested at the beginning just in how you, um, if you can think way, way back, what were the first signs in your life that you wanted to become a singer? Well, you know, there's always that story that your mom will have about, you know, they could they could sing before they could speak, right? So I was just humming away and I would... I would chomp on food and hum the whole time I was eating, which sounds really obnoxious, but she remembers it fondly. So thanks, mom. But uh, (laughs) um, my first sign of a big interest with classical music, I mean, my grandparents used to play classical music in the car. So we would, you know, on the way to the movies, on the way to any sort of event, really, we would get in the car with them, all pile in. And they'd be playing opera or, you know, a beautiful symphony. And my my grandpa, especially, he really loved, he really loved classical music. And he just thought it was the height of beauty. And so I think he was quite pleased when I took to it, as I did. He actually bought my first singing lessons for a year. Um, I was singing horribly off key and we needed to remedy that. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) I think I was eight when he... He said to my parents, I want to make sure she starts learning to sing because she seems to really love it. And uh, I wish that I wish that he was still here to to see all of the wonderful things that I know that he'd be so excited about. And but I'm my grandma is still here and she she feels him at every concert. And so that makes me very happy. So, yeah, I miss my grandpa. I love him very much. Mm -hmm. Where did you grow up? Uh, well, I grew up in Brampton mm-hmm. and then moved to Oakville for my high school years. Yeah, we my family was looking for a change, so we moved over to Oakville. And then I went to um, the uh, University of Western Ontario for my bachelor's of music. Um, and then from there, I went overseas to the Royal Academy for my master's. So, yeah. Wow. And are, were there, there were obviously a series of, of important teachers probably and mentors. Oh, does yeah. Anyone, does anyone stick out as, as being uh, sort of pivotal in your, in your journey? Yeah. You know, there, all the names come rushing back. I mean, I'll tell you right now, my, I owe so much to my current teacher who has actually been my teacher since I was 15. Um, and so through all of those journeys with all those wonderful teachers in different cities, I could always come back to Claudio Stoya, who's my teacher in Toronto. Um, he is a beautiful countertenor, but um, he is a pedagogue and he's also one of my best friends. Uh, he's <laughs> wonderful. And I, I, every time I come to him with a, an issue, I just had a lesson with him. And uh, every time I come to him with you know, a question, or it's just wonderful when you find that, and I think singers talk about this, you know, in every memoir I've read, it's like you find that one teacher who, who you connect on a very, very, um, like on all levels, really, like you, and it's been like that 
since I was young, but I didn't realize the importance of the importance of the connection until, um, you know, until after my master's degree. And I, I came back and I said, Claudio, I missed you. <laughs> oh, it's so wonderful to be back and and to be working in this way where your teacher already knows what your question is before you before you pose it. Right. Um, but I, you know, at the Royal Academy, I studied with Sarah Walker. Um, so, you know, Miss Sarah Walker, she mm-hmm. is incredible. And, um, and she taught me so much about programming, um, about recital work and the intricacies of text, of lining up pieces so that they flow evenly in a program. And, and really, the, I learned a lot about the artistry and all of the work that happens behind the final presentation. Um, And, and so I really learned to take things a lot slower and to, to be more thoughtful and, and question with her. Um, So there, there, that was really a time of refinement um, and a lot of mistakes as well, of course, (laughs) but, (laughs) but, uh, but, you know, in, in the UK, there, there were so many wonderful minds and, and the teachers were really excited if you were excited. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, as you can imagine, <laughs> they were very they were very kind to me. And and the same at Western. Um, and I found myself really missing Western during my free. You know, you always have the the homesick yeah. uh, feeling of of you missing the comfort. And um, and Western was such a such a great time for me to really grow up. So it was sure. it, you know it was really. It was wonderful. I studied with two teachers there. I studied with Jackie Short and with Todd Vichorek. Um, mm-hmm. And both were incredibly supportive. And I think during your undergrad, your teachers are supportive in more ways than just the voice. They're there to help you learn how to be a grown-up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so I owe them that and taking the time with me stumbling, not necessarily just in my vocal studies but in other aspects of life as well. And, and you really don't realize as a student, how much a teacher takes on, you know, with, um, they're actually teaching you everything, not just Mm -hmm. voice, Mm -hmm. (laughs) even though there's so much to learn about voice. Yeah. And, and it's, it's, for me, it's, it's been wonderful because I've stayed in contact with all of these wonderful people. And, you know, I still speak to Jackie and, I still see her in Canada, which is wonderful. It's nice to be back and mm-hmm. and get to work with her, and um, and and yeah. So yeah. was it a was it always your plan to come back to Canada after after being in uh, in England? Well, it really wasn't <laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, if you remember a little thing called Brexit, I was there when that whole thing happened. Mm-hmm. Um, which was, I have to tell you, one of the most profound moments of my life. And I think it was it was an example of someone stepping into a, a world unknown. Right. Um, because I, I had no uh, cards in that game, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I had so many connections and so many friends and I was actually staying at a, at, with friends the night of, and we really didn't expect hmm. what happened to happen. And, um, the next day it, there was just a hush over London. Right. I've never heard the tube so quiet. Hmm. Um, and yeah, so, so I was there for that and that affected my 
wanting to stay. Uh, I my my family has British ancestry, and so I was considering staying there for five years and getting a passport mm. um, and my citizenship, etc. But I ultimately got some offers here, uh, so it made my it made my decision. Uh, easier when I when I had some people reach out and ask me if I'd like to come back right. um, to do other uh, productions here, and I thought, okay, great. I know which direction I'm supposed to go. Hmm. This is good, and it was it, it really lined up because before I left, I was really interested in um, in indigenous work, and that's exactly what was offered to me, or you know, I was asked to collaborate. Yeah, um, and. Uh, I thought, wow, this is really lining up in a way that I hadn't necessarily expected, but I'm very excited about. Because I'm, I should tell your listeners that I'm uh, Métis, so I'm a member of the Métis Nation of Ontario. Uh, I'm also a European settler mix, obviously UK ancestry from what I've said, and also uh, Anishinaabe descended as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so my uh, interests in um, Indigenous Canadian contemporary music has really developed over my entire entire studies but uh, it began in in my undergrad I put it on hold in the UK because that's not really their thing over there Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) and then coming back it was just so exciting because I think that I came back at a really crucial moment where this was beginning to be explored in a lot more serious and enthusiastic way yeah. in the arts community as a whole, but especially in classical uh, classical music, which um, I feel so like privileged to have stepped back into that world because it didn't it didn't feel like that when I left. Right. And obviously we owe a lot to the people who paved the way and Mary Newman, of course, and and Ian Cuson has been composing and he's actually the one who um, who wrote to me and said, I have this piece, would you like to perform it? And I said, yes, a Métis, <laughs> Métis music by a Métis composer and a Métis poet? Of course, that would be mm. amazing. It's yeah. like a dream come true, mm-hmm. which I think I said at the um, at the concert last year. Mm-hmm. It's like... Um, it's like my 22-year-old self had reached out to to the world and said, I have no Métis music to perform for my final recital, and I just wish that I had something that I could could connect with that part of myself and also be connected to classical music, which I love so much. Mm-hmm. And it's like Ian came out and said, here you go <laughs> for the next generation, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so that was really wonderful. So I feel very lucky. I hope I answered your question. I'm yes, sorry. <laughs> no, absolutely. I, I think I think you're you're answering a number of them, which is great. But I, I guess my next question would be: what What are some of the projects that you've been involved in recently? You know, since your return to to Canada, that have excited you the most? Yeah, I am. I'm very proud uh, to have been involved in six indigenous compositions um, and productions in the last, well, since 2017 is when I came back to Canada. Mm. I worked with Unsettled Scores with Spy Denami Welch and and we, we sang some of his work for um, Gathering of Nations last year, which was, which was really wonderful, um, or Celebration of Nations rather, which is a, a big three-day festival in um, 
St. Catharines. Mm -hmm. And that was really special to sing his work. Um, I love that it's inspired by our stories and and his ancestry and also Baroque music, which is really fascinating. And Mm -hmm. so that was really special. I did the premiere of Flight of of the Hummingbird uh, with... um, Vancouver Opera and Pacific Opera Victoria and that was a, a opera for young audiences uh, about the little hummingbird basically the little hummingbird that could right. um, and uh, it was a message about climate change and doing what we can to make a difference mm-hmm. um, and helping our community and relationship with each other so that was really important and we we made it about halfway through the tour before COVID hit and now it's on pause um, but I know the kids really enjoyed it at, at the schools, and I, I shouldn't just say kids. the The high school, um, mm-hmm. the high school students loved loved it too, which was really great. What else? Oh, Shauna Dithit was the premiere with Tapestry and Opera on the Avalon, in which Marion was the lead. Uh, my first time working with Marion, uh, and I was just in awe. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I learned so much from Yvette Nolan and from Marion and from Michelle Olson and Michael Mori, mm. um, you know, everybody that was on that production, it was so, it was such an extra exercise in collaboration, right. which I'm still so impressed with and so um, eager to recommend more people do mm-hmm. when exploring Indigenous opera and Indigenous uh, theatre productions to really reach out and work with lots of different artists and get lots of opinions. Um, and have lots of medium because Indigenous artists really are multidisciplinary and they can do lots of different things. They can dance and sing and act and sew and create beautiful paintings and they can do all kinds of things. And mm-hmm. um, and I suspect more and more of them will come out of on the other end of what we're experiencing now with a lot of digital skills, mm-hmm. <laughs> which mm-hmm. is very cool, too. Um, so that was really wonderful because we had lots of visual artists on the team as well. Uh, and it really was a great collaboration. Um, then there was two odysseys with sound streams, uh, Pemutuin and Galabartnet, which was both uh, the first, I believe, the fo- first Cree opera and the first Sami opera. So those that was just really wonderful as well. And I, I will say the hardest pieces I've ever sung. <laughs> They were very sounded. They sounded challenging. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Very challenging. Very rewarding. I don't think I've been with a happier, friendlier cast. Mm. And also for me, it was special as an as an indigenous artist working on so many productions where each story is about our trauma. This was actually like a warm hug because it was a creation. They were both creation stories, both of these operas. And so nobody was really ever very sad and mm-hmm. that's great mm-hmm. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. for at least from the ensemble perspective we were very close and really enjoyed each other's company and and that was very special so i so, think i covered all the yeah <laughs> no that's wonderful so in addition to to doing all of this performing i noticed that you are sort of emerging and doing more um advocacy work and yeah. men- mentorship work um in in one i know with one organization that i spoke to the founders of last month opera in reach yes and uh so why is that kind of work important to you as well as as you journey forward in this in this career 
Yeah, Opera and Reach is, when I received the message from them, I was just so excited because I felt like, oh, I don't have to do this alone. This 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 project and this idea that I've been trying to uh, work out how to tackle. And my first instinct is usually to not ask for help, <laughs> like so many mm-hmm. of us. Mm-hmm. And when I saw the 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 ideas that the team had, you know, Andrew, David, and uh, Daniela, I was like, this is just exactly what I've been hoping for. And what what a bunch of brilliant minds to be taking the reins and doing this work. Um, the couple of times that I've reached out to organizations about bringing in classical music into into schools in a more one-on-one or you know a, a capacity that's less uh, one-off workshop and more mm-hmm. integrated into the curriculum in a, in a way as much as it can be for visitors I can't f- remember where that sentence was leading I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> no but, that's uh, fine yeah I, I guess I guess what you mean is um, quite often when we do uh, guest artist work in schools. It's it it is a one off kind of master class or a performance or something, mm-hmm. and it seems that Opera and Reach is more is interested in a more holistic, more long term, yeah, and forging relationships. And mm-hmm. I think that's so important. And because you know, visiting a school once, you might spark someone's interest, and then they're all by themselves to right. go find out what they should do about it, or you know. Can I can I really be an opera singer? Is that something that I could be? Well, you know, by telling them yes and then leaving, mm-hmm. it doesn't really feel very accessible. So I really like this idea of of creating the mentorship where students can actually reach out to to people who have been there and and speak to them. And I one of the other things that really drew me to Opera and Reach is the inclusivity that they've that they're clearly um that they've clearly mandated right like yeah they want students to see themselves represented in the mentors that they're taking on so you know they want the black students to see that andrew's here and he's successful and he can he is an opera singer and he's a beautiful baritone Mm -hmm. and they can be that too and it's for them and it's you know the industry is hard for everybody but we don't want them to feel like that them being black, indigenous, or a person of color, Asian, anything should never be stand in your way of pursuing this art that is now for everybody. It's for mm-hmm. everyone. Mm-hmm. It's the um, it's the art for the people. So uh, I think that's so important that an indigenous student will see an indigenous opera singer and be able to speak to them if they want to. Right. And yeah. I'm and I'm over here just I you know, obviously I love to talk. <laughs> <laughs> you can't stop me. So um so anybody that you know wants to speak to me, I'd be so pleased and is is curious and and has questions, that that's just wonderful. And um and absolutely teaching and going in with new ideas. I mean, we have so many teachers throughout our lives and maybe it's that one thing that we hear. Mm-hmm. but it sticks with you forever yeah and you think i re- still remember that teacher's name even though they were only i only yeah. got to have three lessons with them right so so that's i think the i you know i'm sure that andrew and and the rest of the team 
said it with much more panache. But, uh, <laughs> no, well, no, I mean, they were great, but you're, you, uh, you are very persuasive in well, your, yeah. uh, that, in your description of their work too. Yeah. 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 That's my gist. And I, I'm very pleased about that. And, uh, and on top of that, I've, I've been finding myself, uh, sitting on more and more committees and kind of doing some behind the scenes work. So those things that, um, are less uh, public facing, yeah. but we're trying to get to tackle the things that need to be tackled within the opera industry themselves. And, um, and we're having the hard conversations. So um, if anybody's worried about that, I promise you, <laughs> we're doing it. Um, and, and not just me, there's, there's, you know, opera companies across Canada are coming together and, and think and trying to understand what they need to do to to move forward in a good way. And, and that's, you know, that's all we can do. Um, and that's what my teachings tell me is, you know, not to forget, right? but to, how do we tackle this so that we can move forward in a good way? Isn't it interesting that we have been paused from in-person performances at, right at this time, right at this time when we're, when we're addressing these important questions, these essential questions, yeah. And it's almost as if we're we've now been granted the time to try and sort things out and yeah. get it right. Make some um, right. And I I do think it will be fascinating when we come back. I, I say when because it'll be <laughs> it we'll feels endless now, but we will be back. <laughs> yes. Um when we come back, it it will be really fascinating to see all of the changes and the movements forward that have that have happened and mm. it, it will almost be like a a re-emerging, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, my last question is: You're you're such an ebullient and joyful and positive, optimistic uh, person, and also the, you radiate that those kinds of qualities on the stage. And I wonder in this in this uh, in this time of isolation, how are you managing to remain optimistic and joyful? That is so kind of you to say. Oh my goodness, I'm <laughs> I'm blushing all over. Um, uh, you know, I'm I'm staying grounded in the work, um, and I don't know if you know, but I'm actually at the Indigenous Artists in Residence at the National Theatre School right now. So oh, fantastic! Yeah, so I'm actually really grounded in the work. Mm. <laughs> um, I've been reading a ton of plays and um, doing a lot of research, trying you know writing. I've, I'm all over the place artistically, which I'm so thankful for because. Um, I don't know how well I'd be doing if I wasn't um, completely, you know, <laughs> drenched in art <laughs> right, right now, yeah. um, which I'm, I'm so thankful for. And I think for me, I'm lucky the timing worked out in this way. And it's, you know, it's not the coolest to take classes um, on Zoom, but the school is working really hard and there are some in-person things that we can do to continue. And I've just been so thankful for the movement classes, actually. Mm. And the voice and body work and just getting really grounded and, and being in a, a class where other people are using their voices too, right. um, rather than just me in the corner of my little apartment. Um, <laughs> and it's just so good to hear and feel that community, even if it's half the class size and, you know, all that. So yeah. I'm, I'm grateful for that. I've also, I know this is a visual thing, but I'll just show you. <laughs> I've been beating like crazy. Oh, um, wonderful. And I have a few. I'm, I'm beating poppies right now. So I don't know if the light Gorgeous. is too crazy. But um, 
I, yes, poppies are huge and <laughs> everybody wants one. I'm trying to get as many done as I can <laughs> uh, before November, but uh, there's some other projects that are coming up. So I'm like trying to learn a lot of music and right. trying to, but um, yeah, I've been beating a lot as well. So yeah, great. so I've been doing that and which is so great because I have to be doing something with my hands on Zoom. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm I'm an auditory, of course, musician, very auditory learner, um, but I'm fidgety, so I yeah. have to do something with my hands. So I'm very grateful for beating. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, um, I think that answers your question there. Well, too. <laughs> thank you so much, and it's been such a joy to to reconnect with you, and I wish you all the best in uh, in all of your endeavors. It sounds like you're very busy. You're keeping very busy. Yeah. And uh, and I hope you'll keep in touch with uh, with Confluence and come back and sing for us. Oh, of course. Uh, yep. Yeah, um, Marion and I are working on lots of stuff right now, so that'd be really cool. And uh, and thank you for taking the time. It's so great to see you and your lovely smile. And uh, I can't wait to listen to all of the other the other episodes. And yeah, please keep doing this because it's nice to stay connected. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. We'll talk soon. Okay. <laughs> That was mezzo-soprano Rebecca Cuddy. To find out more about Rebecca's wide variety of endeavors, visit RebeccaCuddy.com. You're listening to The Fuse, the podcast of Confluence Concerts. My name is Larry Beckwith. If you haven't done so already, please visit the Confluence YouTube channel and click on the subscribe button. Our next event will premiere on November 21st, which is the 325th anniversary of the death of England's great composer, Henry Purcell. We will have performances from many parts of the country, including chamber music from Victoria Baroque, Baroque dance from Montreal, and a feast of vocal music from here in Toronto. I'm also very honoured to be interviewing the distinguished British conductor and scholar, Andrew Parrott, as a pre-show event. The program, A Personal Remembrance, will premiere on November 21st and stay up on our channel for two weeks afterwards. There's no charge to enjoy the concert. If you're interested in becoming a member of Confluence Concerts and receiving a number of membership perks, please visit our website at confluenceconcerts.ca. My last guest on this month's edition of The Fuse is the remarkable Canadian organist Matthew Larkin. Matthew is the founding artistic director of Chalice Academy Ensemble, music director of the Anglican Chorale of Ottawa, principal family conductor of the Ottawa Pops Orchestra, and he maintains a busy calendar of recital, conducting, and collaborative projects. One such project is a solo organ recording on the great instrument at St. Paul's Bloor Street in Toronto, and Matthew joins me to talk about this recording now. Matthew Larkin. Welcome to The Fuse. Thank you. So it seems like ages ago now, but it was only a few months ago we, we met at uh, St. Paul's Anglican Church in Toronto and recorded a whole whack of, of organ music, beautifully played on that um, magnificent instrument. Can you talk a little bit about how you went about putting that program together? Sure. I think as there always are with these recordings of any kind of repertoire and any kind of instrument uh, you want to have some kind of thread through the music that you choose that is unifying and 
organs being fixed installations in certain buildings, there are a lot of characteristics to consider. So in choosing an instrument like St. Paul's, we, we, chose, we chose an organ that, that plays to a certain aesthetic, a certain tradition uh, within the organ repertoire. So that also focuses our choices, I suppose I should, I should, I should say, you know, around um, a certain kind of organ music that will be accommodated well by an instrument like that. And it's a very big instrument. It mm. has a lot of different options as far as tonal palette, color of sound, and what have you. But I think what we find with a lot of organs that as many stops as they may have, and in the case of St. Paul's, we're getting close to 100 stops, they're voiced according to a certain discipline, a certain style, a certain tradition. And so it's good to choose music that is going to sound well within that tradition. And there still is a very broad scope of possibilities. On our recording, we have you know, things from the, the 17th century, uh, things from the 18th century, the 19th, the 20th and 21st centuries. And so we're, we're playing music that encompasses 500 years, but we've weighted those choices very much toward the, the late 19th and you know, through to the mid 20th century. That's, that's where most of the recording is historically founded, but the organ really rewards music of that period. Uh, it, it plays it really well. And the design of the organ, of course, comes almost smack dab in the middle of, of those repertoire choices with an instrument that was built, you know, slightly before and during World War I. So anything by Mendelssohn, or if I were to have played Rheinberger, or, or perhaps the successor of those German composers, someone like Rager, which we did play, um, it rewards that. It also rewards that British style use of the organ. Thus, we have Willen, the former organist of that church. Um, we have Macmillan. We also have the French masters of the uh, end of the 19th century represented in the person of Franck, for example. And then given the number of colors that are available on the instrument, it was possible to do some transcriptions as well, like the Messiaen movement. Um, and several hundred years before the keyboard piece by Couperin, which he probably never heard on an organ, but, but I think works quite well for it if you space out the tempo a little bit more and then involving a British master like Herbert Howells. Uh, and then we get to some 21st century guys as well. Uh, someone really established like Andrew Ager mm -hmm. and someone trying to establish himself like Ben Mallory. So we quite a, quite a, a rounded palette and oh yeah. And even a little tip of the cap to the jazz man himself, Keith Jarrett. So what I tried to do was put a program together that would interest a wide range of listeners. Um, and all of those selections were faithful to the tradition that that organ is built in and, and that it serves really, really well through uh, its tonal resources in a great acoustic. Uh, this, is a, this is a question that, that perhaps would take hours to, to answer completely but you know you've you've intimated that you you touched on five centuries of organ music and or representatives from five centuries of organ music and uh, quite often during the recording session 
or during our discussions about it, you would refer to the registration of the organ. For, for people who don't know about that, what is involved in registering the organ? Or when, when you talk about registration, organ registrations, what, what exactly do you mean? Well, when we talk about registration, what we're referring to specifically is the selection of stops. Each stop represents a rank of pipes or more than one rank of pipes that is um, a color of some kind. And some of, some of the words that we use to describe those colors match orchestral instruments. For example, there'll be a stop called an oboe or there'll be a stop called a flute, or there'll be a stop called a string, or something like a diapason or a principal, which those are sounds that are unique to the organ. When we think of the some of the old um, literary masters uh, earlier in the English language uh, would refer to the diapason as a, a unifying sound of, in fact, the entire the constellations that we see, the, the spheres that, that we see in our own sphere, the universe itself, if it were to make a sound, it would be a sound like that. That's, you know, that's the origin of the word diapason and the diapason, the fundamental sound of the organ. And then sort of bouncing around that sound are all these orchestral imitative colors, which are not, they're not designed to be you know, how a synthesizer or a sampler is, is going to try and represent exactly what, let's say, a clarinet sounds like. Mm -hmm. The organ doesn't, um, it doesn't claim to be able to do those things in, in a perfect match, but, but it, it makes a sound that is similar to those things. And, and the closest descriptor we have is to call this a trumpet or to call this you know, um, a bassoon or what have you. So registration then is the collection or the combination of all or, or fewer of these elements to create a sound. And the organ, unlike the piano, and the piano you can just, you know, you can use more force as you play and the piano will be louder. Mm -hmm. And then of course, as you strike a note on the piano, and if you were to hold that note, it immediately starts the diminuendo. Now on the organ, you can, with gesture, uh, create some of the same effects, but it's not going to result in an identifiably different dynamic unless you add or subtract stops. And it's your discernment as, as to which stops to add and subtract and, and when mm -hmm. is what we call registration. So we're using the different registers of the organ to create a musical effect that's called registration. So in Bach's time, and Bach is a great example because he wrote more organ music than arguably anybody else, there are very few, as in fewer than 20 uh, in all of his organ works, uh, indications of registration. And mm -hmm. even there, it might be a simple thing like forte or piano, or uh, in one case I can think of uh, an indication of which division of the organ to use. So in the Dorian Toccata, for example, there's indications of Hauptwerk and Positiv, which are two different divisions of the organ in the German tradition, that one being sort of louder than the other, right. uh, and, and then being a dialogue, contrasting dialogue uh, in tonal color. But most of the time, I mean, you play 
Baroque music all the time. So you, we all know, right, that when, when, when we've played enough of this music, we can recognize what the gesture is, mm -hmm. and we can recognize what the style is, and it's obvious right. what's the B forte and piano. So the composer doesn't tell us those things. Um, however, if you, if you go into 19th century writing, particularly late 19th century writing, where the organ as a kind of mini symphony orchestra uh, be it began to be employed that way, particularly by French composers, and we call them French symphonic composers, like mm -hmm. Vidor and Vierne and, and so forth. And Franck, of course, uh, informed them very much because he was just a generation before, where specific sounds of the organ were called for uh, within the framework of the musical composition. And so the organ really was intended to be an orchestrally um, sounding instrument, you know, uh, as those composers, that's what they heard when they were constructing their pieces. Right. And it has its origin too in, in, the, in the French organ construction, because even, even in the Baroque era, the French organs were known not so much for the quality of their unison, that is to say, when all the stops were employed at the same time, but for the quality of the individual colors. So when we look at French Baroque music by Francois Couperin and others, he's very much requesting specific stops, which German Baroque composers never did, mm. um, uh, high, heightening the, the quality of the, you know, the crumb horns and, and the hautbois and the trompette uh, and the bourdon and, and the cornet and, and things that were really unique individual sounds. And so that tradition that was established by people like Couperin was used by French composers uh, in, the, in the forthcoming centuries uh, and are still very much part of French composition for the organ today where they're asking for specific colors. Other traditions of organ composition are doing the same thing and have done the same thing for about a hundred years, but not to the same extent. Right. So right. It's, a, it's a pretty fascinating thing. And I know that when I go and if I need to perform on an instrument that I don't know the instrument or I need to be reacquainted with the instrument, um, I'll do one of two things. If I have time, I'll do about a 10 to 12 minute improvisation, trying to use every stop of the organ or any possible combination during that improvisation. But it's sort of like, as I, as I go up to my double forte, I'm going one path, but as I go back to my, uh, my pianissimo, I need to get there by another way, right? So right. I'm, I'm not, not using the same passageway. But if there isn't time to do that, I'll just simply hold down a tryout or play a couple of melodic notes and go from stop to stop to stop just to see what they do. Often, actually, with Canadian instruments, sometimes I just look at who built it and when right. they built it. Uh, and that kind of tells me without even switching the organ on um, in, a, in a general way what it's mm -hmm. going to sound like. Well, this is great. I could go on. Actually, this is fascinating. Um, we look forward to the recording. I know we are hard at it, or we should be hard at it in terms of, of doing final edits and, and uh, getting masters together and the CD booklets and all that kind of thing. It's going to come soon. And um, we really look forward to it. And we can, I look forward to telling the, the Confluence listeners about it uh, uh, more fully when it's, uh, when it's released. And, maybe, and having you back for another chat. Look forward to it. My pleasure. That was organist Matthew Larkin. 
His new recording will be available in a few short months, and we will keep listeners up to date with details on how to obtain it. And that brings us to the end of this month's edition of The Fuse, the podcast of Confluence Concerts. Thanks so much for listening. If you would like to get in touch with us, please email me at larry at confluenceconcerts.ca. It would be great to hear from you. We will be back in a few weeks with another edition of the program. In the meantime, be safe and be well. Goodbye. Goodbye.